0: Revelation chapter two verse twelve. Revelation two, verse twelve. The church at Pergamos or Pergamon. Verse twelve And to the angel in the church, or to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write. These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have there those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Manna, white stone gifts to the ones that overcome when we started the churches we kind of were we're taking a journey right start in Ephesus and say you're with a friend and you want to you know tour the area and there you are in Ephesus and there was that church in Ephesus that man they had great doctrine and they they didn't put up with false teaching but you remember Jesus said you left your first love and then and then you move north and you go to Smyrna that beautiful little city there with a church there that jesus says nothing bad about but yet they were undergoing severe persecution and and that persecution was at the hands of the jews and they they were being persecuted but yet they were strong and jesus says nothing about uh bad about the church at smyrna well if you left smyrna say you're continuing on your tour you leave smyrna and you go north now this is modern day turkey so you're kind of skirting up the east coast of turkey if you were to look at a modern map, so you go up, you go up north, and you go about sixty-five miles north, and you come to a city, Pergamum, or Pergamus, either way. It's not on the main road. It's not on the main road. It's not on a main trade route because Pergamum was about fifteen miles inland. It's the modern day city. If you were to look at a modern map, it's the modern day city of Bergamum. So it's not on the coast like Ephesus and Smyrna, these great seaports. But this is inland, so it's not on a main trade route, on a main road. But it was on an important road. It was on a road that was called the Sacred Way. It was on a road that sometimes was referred to as the Imperial Way. It's situated in, in a mountain. It's situated in the mountains. And on the mountain, and this mountain, by the way, is dark, dark granite. It's real dark. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, just real dark granite mountains. And so this city's situated, and on top of a mountain there was this great theater. So as you came to the city, and you would look up, you would see this great theater that that was at the top of the mountain. In the city, you would have seen what was pretty typical of cities of this time. There was a hill in the city. This was called an Acropolis. And as you approached that hill and you began to look, there would be ways in and out. And you would look and you would see on this hill, this Acropolis, you would see all these pagan temples. There was a great, great temple to Zeus in Pergamon. There was a temple to Dionysus in Pergamon. There was a temple to Athena. There was, there was pagan temples everywhere. Asclepius, Os, There was a great temple to the medical god, Demeter. They were striking. They, were, they would be beautiful. You would just sort of be standing there looking at these marvelous temples. And as you sort of strolled around the city, what would strike you was wealth. You would see the city was wealthy. You would see that the city, the city carried a sense of authority about it. There was something important about this city, in which it was. It, was, it rivaled Ephesus and Smyrna for a capital city. In fact, the government was seated in Pergamum. The Romans held it in high regard. The Roman proconsul lived in Pergamon in the region. And the Romans gave capital punishment to the Roman proconsul in Pergamon so they could put people to death. That didn't happen everywhere in Rome. But Rome gave Pergamon this right to carry out capital punishment so if you lived in the city you you would it would be a common sight to see people brought in from other places in the region and they would be brought in and there would be executions and so forth and this this capital punishment carried out by the government by the roman government it would also if you were a believer and were in this church is rest assured you'd probably see other christians being brought in who'd been arrested and they would be put to death But you would be be struck by the beauty, the wealth, the sense of power, the sense that Pergamon was this fortress. And you would just be stunned by its beauty. The city grew in importance after Alexander the Great died. And in 133 BC, the king, the last king of Pergamon, handed the city over to the Roman government, handed it over to Rome. Now, I doubt very seriously he had much of a choice, right? It was either handed over or we're going to take it, probably, is the way it was put. That's the way Rome operated. So Rome took control of it. And again, it became an important Roman city for the for the area, for Asia Minor, for this area. And it became an important place for government activity. But again, I want you to remember this this was one of the rare places in the Roman Empire where they could carry out capital punishment. Authority. What the church at Pergamon's going to face is they're not facing persecution from the Jews. What they are facing is state sponsored persecution. What they're facing in Pergamon is a state sponsored uh, persecution. Pergamon had this, this great library. Some said it was over 200,000 books, and some historians said it rivaled the the library that was in Alexandria, Egypt. What's interesting about what happened to this library is Mark Antony's strolling through the place, and he goes through, and he sees it, and he takes all the books. He takes all the books because he's going to make a gift to Cleopatra. And so one of the things that Egypt did, though, before that happened, is that Egypt cut off usually you would have the reed plant and that's how they would make the paper and they would do books and so Egypt was was tired of hearing the Pergamon library and Alexandria is the greatest library in the world so they cut off all the reed they cut off all the the parchment to write with so Pergamon developed animal skins this is where it developed and so they started writing on animal skins and so they developed this great library that rivaled Alexandria but Mark Antony put an end to that This was a place of great beauty, wealth, and again, you just would have the sense of being in a place of authority and power. It was an important place for Rome. Yet situated in this city was this little church. This little group of believers who are situated in this city, and they're trying to survive... They're trying to survive, and what appears to be, from what we see, what Christ says about this church, they seem to be caught trying to determine what is compromise and what is accommodate. The pressures are coming from the outside. The pressures are coming and state-sponsored pressures, pagan culture to the core. And so this little church is sitting there, and, and just imagine, most of them would have been converted out of pagan backgrounds. There was a Jewish presence here. But most of these would have been converted pagans. And they worked with other pagans. And they shop with other pagans and they have to, they have to live in this kind of culture. They have to live in this kind of environment. And so how far do I go? How far do I go just to get along and have some relative peace and safety and for my wife, my kids and so forth? At what point, where is the line between compromising my faith and accommodating a whole bunch of cultural stuff that I might be able to accommodate without compromising. Sound familiar? I would put it to you, that's exactly where we are right now. That's exactly where we are right now. We're in a pagan culture. Spiritual, yeah. But it's a pagan spirituality. Spirituality. And as believers, we're trying to live in this pagan culture. And we're trying to discern, at what point do I begin to compromise my faith? What can I accommodate from this culture? Listen, I would love to, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. These are well-known examples, and we've talked about them before. But what if my wife came to me tomorrow and said, you know what, I think I'm going to change genders. I'm jealous of you. I think I'm going to be a man. You know what's happening? You know what's going on? You know what's happening? I mean, that's just one example. We, as a culture, as a pagan culture, we, we've tried to redefine marriage. Right? I mean, we've redefined it. No longer man and a woman. And, and rest assured, it, it'll eventually be whatever. Marry whatever you want to. The gender confusion, all of this. I would love to go back to the days where there was a debate within the church about whether or not women should work outside the home. Remember those days? I mean, that was the issue. Now we're just trying to figure out who men and women are. How do we we function in that kind of pagan culture and environment? What about your work? You face it at your work. You face it in ways and sometimes maybe you don't realize it until afterwards and then you realize, man, I've rubbed shoulders with a very pagan culture. Our children, raising our children and so forth. Trying to survive as Western ideas and West, the Western mindset, I could go on about technology, right? How do, how do, we, how do we deal with technology? How do we deal with the Western idea, the, what we call the great American dream, and do I pursue wealth and power at all costs? I mean, these are very real issues. And look, the issues aren't going away, and they're getting more and more, and they're morphing into all kinds of other issues and so forth today. So how, how can I try to understand compromise and accommodate? What can I accommodate? Let me say this, too, about tolerance. We hear this all the time, right? Tolerance is the buzzword now. you know what tolerance used to mean? Tolerance used to mean, look, you can say whatever you want. In fact, you remember the saying? You can say whatever you want, and I'll defend to the death your right to say it, right? But I can say I don't agree with you. And the old understanding of tolerance was we could disagree, but yet coexist together and not try to kill each other. Tolerance has been redefined now. Tolerance is no longer where we can both disagree on something, but yet live peacefully together to where tolerance is, if you disagree with me, I'm going to destroy you. That's the new mode of tolerance now. So when you hear certain people say, we need to be a tolerant society, watch out. What they're saying is, you better agree with me or we'll destroy you. You Christians, you need to be tolerant and what they're saying is compromise our faith, give it up, or we're coming after you. And they've come after us in a lot of different ways, and they're going to continue to do so. So, just like Pergamon here, how, how do we how do we exist in that kind of culture? There is a danger of what's known as syncretism, that is taking and blending all sorts of things, blending them together, trying to make up, you know, trying to get along with everybody, and bringing opposites together to where we just lose We lose what is true. We lose the gospel. That's going on in churches all over the place. And they do it in the name of contextualization. We need to contextualize. We need to relate to our community and so forth. Well, these churches are in cities, and they do relate to them, but we cannot, we cannot, we must not compromise with a pagan culture. We will not. We will not. We will hold to the scriptures and... Let the chips fall where they may. So, what do we do? What did Pergamon do? What did Jesus say to this church here, this, this little church in this place, in the city of Pergamos, in the city of Pergamon? Well, there's three insights here. I think there's three insights to what Jesus says to this church. And we'll kind of follow the same pattern that we've been following uh, with this. There, there is the good. He says some good things about this church. And in understanding what's good, I think the insight there is we had better understand what's important here. We had better understand what's important and what we do need to hold on to. In other words, this comes down to understanding the difference between what can we accommodate and what can we not compromise. So there's the good and then then we'll look at the bad and that is what happens there. And and we need to understand and know that in the bad compromise is possible. Do you know leaders of churches can go bad? Do you know that? Pastors can go bad. But so can church members. So can church members. So can deacons. So can elders. We need to understand it's possible because if we take the attitude well it'll never affect us and it can't happen to us then what does the Bible say about pride comes before a fall and if we take that kind of attitude then we probably have already compromised. We probably have already compromised. And then there's a beautiful promise. So let's look at the first thing he says to the good. We, got, we have to know what's important. He starts and he says, unto the angel of the church at Pergamos, Write, it's a command, write. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now this comes right out of the vision of Jesus in the first part of the book. In fact, it comes from chapter 1 verse 16 where Jesus is pictured this way and he says, I'm writing to the angel. And again, I think the angel's the pastor here. It, it, some said that it may be some type of guardian angel over to the church. I take it to be the pastor of the church. So to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, this is the one speaking to you. He's got a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think you understand that a two-edged sword, you can cut both ways, Right? I mean, you can slash this way and slash that way. And there's some advantages to having a two-edged sword if you're in a sword fight. Right? A one-edged sword only cuts one way. This, Jesus said, this sharp two-edged sword, it cuts every way. And I think when the writer of Hebrews talks about the Word of God in this way, it cuts every way. It cuts, he says, to the very joints, to the very marrow. It cuts to the very deepest part of our being. And nothing else can do that but the Word of God. Also, I think, maybe behind this is the idea that there's blessing. It can cut one way and bless, but it can cut another way and curse. You can believe and be saved. Or you can turn away and face the wrath of God for all eternity. But also keep in mind, remember I told you, Pergamon had been given in a sense the right to wield the sword. If we went to Romans 13 and we see what Paul says about government, and one of the functions of government is that government is there for to protect the good and it's there to punish the bad. And he speaks of government in the sense of having this sword, this authority, this power. And it could be that what Jesus is doing is, this, this may be sort of a backhanded slap at Pergamon. It may be sort of a backhanded slap at the Roman Empire. You think you can grant the right to life and death. You think that you can give your government officials and Pergamon the right to life and death. And that my people should fear you because you are the one who holds the right to life and death. It could be what Jesus is saying, I am the one who ultimately holds the right to life and death. I am the one who ultimately wields the sword. So don't fear them. So he says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now here he goes, he says, I know your works. He does this with the churches. I know your works. And know here, I know, I know completely, I know your works. He knows our works better than we know our works. So he says to this little church, I know your works and where you dwell. I know where you're dwelling. I know where you're living. I know where you are. I know where the church is. And, and not just the church. And they probably didn't have a church building like this. And I thought very seriously, probably some, some person in the church may have had a home big enough that they could meet and they could gather and so forth. So it, it's, it's not like I know where your church building is. No, I know where you've been placed. And I know what you've been saved out of. And I know where you're dwelling. I know where you're living every day. But it's interesting what he says. And he makes this description of where they live. It's where Satan's throne is. Now why in the world would he say that? One of the things about Pergamon is that it was given to emperor worship. We've dealt with this. We dealt with it with Smyrna. We'll deal with it again with these churches. And we'll deal more about the history of emperor worship. But basically the emperor of Rome... And the Senate had passed that Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, was to be worshipped as a god. And so the emperors thereafter would take on the title and demand to be worshipped, some more than others. And Pergamon was a place, a center for emperor worship. And it could be that that's what he's referencing. I know where you are. And Satan's throne here could be a reference to that. It could just be a simple reference to all the idolatry that was going on everywhere. In these pagan temples. Idolatry was rampant in paganism. It still is today. And so it could be just that. All this idolatry that's around you. But there was a God and there was a temple there. The medical God. And this God, Asclepius. If you've seen the medical symbol, have you ever seen it's the staff and the serpent intertwined? And the staff and that, you know, you see that and it's a symbol of medical, you can get medical attention or whatever. Sometimes at hospitals you see that. That was the symbol for this medical God, this God of medicine in Rome. And it could be that, that somehow maybe that's what he's referring to, this throne there, this serpent and this staff. We don't know for sure. But we do know that whatever it is that what's happening here is that the church at Pergamos is there, there. There's a threat there, and Jesus describes it as where Satan's throne is. This is where you're living. You're not in an easy place. You're in a very difficult place. Think, think just for a minute about. I mean, we wouldn't describe where we live as the place where Satan's throne is, right? Although he is the god of this world, and I get that, and we can make an argument for that, but. We wouldn't think in terms of where we live. Your neighborhood does not have Satan's throne in it, right? Suppose you were in some African place where witchcraft was prominent and witch doctors were everywhere. Suppose that you were somewhere in South America, some Brazilian jungle or something, and witchcraft was everywhere. And you see how we could say, ah oh, man, Satan's throne's there. You see how we could, we could make that connection there? I think that's what Jesus is trying to make here. It's not like, oh, this is the only place Satan is. No. But you're in a bad place. You're in a very difficult situation. And I know it. There's some comfort in him knowing that, right? Have you ever been in a difficult spot and just having somebody come along and just hold your hand or hug you and just say, hey, And I know you're in a tough spot. And sometimes just somebody else saying they know you're in a tough spot, doesn't that bring some kind of encouragement? They meant I can do a thing for you. I've sat in a hospital room and just sat there with people, not knowing necessarily what to say, except, hey, you know, I'm here. Let's pray together. I mean, that brings some comfort. So that's what Jesus is doing. And this is what he says. Here's the good. And you hold fast my name. Not your name, but you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. And then here it comes again, where Satan dwells. It's a difficult place that you are. We know nothing about Antipas. I wish I had some great story about Antipas being this great, strong Christian man. I don't know. Whatever I would tell you, I would be making up. I don't know. Historians don't know anything about Antipas. But what we do know is that he was put to death. He was martyred. So he must have somehow stood against this paganism and they put him to death. They killed him. But notice what he says. You hold fast my name and you don't deny my faith. This is the good. This is the one thing we have to understand that's important. The most important thing that we have as a church is Christ. His name. His faith that's been given to us. That's the most important thing that we have. That's the most precious thing that we have. And if we lose that, we cease to be a church. We can have great buildings and everything else that goes along with it and... Function and everybody go along and say, hey, look at that church over there. But if we lose that and we compromise His name, we compromise the gospel, we compromise the Word of God, all in the name of accommodation. See, some in the church at Pergamos may have even gone this route because I hear this all the time. Hey, look, let's let's just go join in with them, man. What's the big deal? Besides, if we go buddy up with them and we participate in their pagan stuff, What's the big deal? We might even be able to win them to Christ. That never happens. Do you realize that? That never happens. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Right? In fact, it's one of the things that they got on him. They accused him of. You you, you, you know, you wine-bibber. You're a drunk. You hang around tax collectors. You hang around sinners. Yeah, he was a friend of sinners. But he didn't join in Their debauchery. He ate with them. But you know what? When he ate with them, he pointed them to the gospel, didn't he? When he went to their house, he didn't go in their house and, you know, sort of, you know, join in the party and, hey man, isn't this great? Aren't we all just... He didn't know. He was friends with them. He went with them. But they knew who he was. They knew where he stood. And he lovingly dealt with them. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. But you didn't deny my name and you, and, and, and you 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 hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. That's the important thing here. That's what we have to hang on to. That's all we have as a church at the end of the day. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. We have Christ. And we will guard it. We will guard it. We have to guard it. And that's what he says about the church at Pergamus. You did this. And there's one of you that was even put to death. Probably others. We don't know. But then here comes the bad. And he says, But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And to commit sexual immorality. This would have been part of pagan ritual. They would have eaten things sacrificed to idols. There would have been all sorts of sexual immorality. In fact, in these temples, in these pagan temples, they would have had, they would have had temple prostitutes and everything. And you just couldn't imagine what all went on in some of this pagan worship. And what he's saying is, you've got some, just like Balaam in the Old Testament. Now you have to go back to the book of Numbers. If you go back to the book of Numbers, there about chapter 22, we we run into this Balaam and we run into Balak. I don't know if you remember the story. Let me give you the short version. Balak says, These Israelites, I can't defeat them. I want them gone. So he calls the prophet Balaam. And he gets Balaam and he says, Balaam, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to curse. The Israelites. I want you to curse them so I can defeat them and, and I can get rid of them. And if you remember the story, there was one, one, one place where he's on the donkey and he's going along. This story always fascinated me for one reason. It, well, for a number of reasons, but one of the things that just struck me about the story is if you remember, the angel stands in front of the donkey. You remember the donkey stops? Remember that? And Balaam gets mad. I think he beats the donkey. You remember what the donkey did? The donkey turns around and says, basically, What are you hitting me for? And what's amazed me is that is Balaam carries on a conversation. I would have been amazed that a donkey was talking to me, but he just keeps on with the conversation. I'm trying to go here, and you won't go. And so all this happens. And again, it, you can read about this in Numbers, and there's several chapters that cover this. He goes, and he 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 tells Balak, "Look, I'll I'll do, but I can only speak what the Lord says." And so he goes the first time, goes to bless him and or curse him. And what does he do? He blesses him. Balak gets upset. Come back, do it again. You you messed up. You didn't do it right. You didn't say the right words or something. So he does it again. What happens? He blesses. He can't curse. Balak's upset again. Come back. Do it again. Stand over here. Don't stand over here. Maybe it's where you're standing. What does he do? Blesses him. Balak's upset. You rascal, man. I'm paying you and you you can't carry this. What does he do? He does it again. Apparently, Balaam convinced Balak of something. Because later on, About chapter 31, Moses, the people do eventually fall, but what they fall into is they start marrying the foreign women, and what they start doing is they start blending the pagan culture with their culture. And God hated that. And they were judged for it. And Moses, in talking to the people later, Moses says, he makes a statement, and he says that you did this according to the counsel of Balaam. So apparently what happened is Balaam said, look, don't try to curse them and beat them militarily. Just go get them to compromise their faith. And they were more than willing to compromise their faith. They were more than willing to compromise their faith. Come at them militarily They'll stand up against you. Subtly slip in there. Tell them, hey, why don't you just get along? It's okay to marry that foreign woman. It's okay to have that idol in your house. It's okay to do this and to do that. Now, somebody pointed to that, and somebody pointed to this here too, and said, well, Paul says to the Corinthians and the issue of idol and eating meat that was offered to idols there in 1 Corinthians. Somebody said, well, you know, here Paul is saying it's by conscience. Well, the, the difference is in Corinthians, the church of Corinth, they weren't participating in the pagan festivals. They were just trying to decide whether they buy cheap meat or not. In Pergamos... They're participating in it. They're wrapped up in it. They have, they've compromised. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. I've got a few things against you. You've got there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And then he mentions again, uh, he talks about the idol worship, sexual immorality. And you also have there those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing I hate. We saw this with Ephesus. We don't know much about it. We just know Jesus doesn't like it. In fact, the strong language I hate. Apparently, what was going on is there were some in the church, and they might have been teachers in the church. They must have had some influence, maybe even the pastor. And what they were teaching was it's okay to openly compromise with the pagans if it means you're going to be safe and it means you can keep your job and if it means your family's safe and your wife's safe and your children are safe and it means you can keep your land and you can keep your house and all that just go ahead man God's going to understand that after all we always fall back on this one don't we after all God knows we're not what that's the ultimate cop out How many times have I used it when I've done something stupid and I've sinned and I've, I, the thought comes to my mind, well, gee, I'm not perfect. That's no excuse. God knows I'm not perfect. So that's what was going on in the church. This, this threat is coming and this threat here is on the inside. Yes, there was the state-sponsored pressure, but the main threat this church was facing was on the inside People saying compromise. And apparently a large part of the church was going along with it. Yeah, sure. They weren't disciplined in what was being taught in the church. They didn't guard it. You remember what the good was? You hold fast. My name. You don't deny my faith. And you don't let anything come in. It's going to rip that apart and cause you to compromise it. I could go through the New Testament and show you the warnings from Paul. Jude talks about these people who crept in unnoticed. They sneak in, they've crept in unnoticed. And so this compromise, this open compromise. Well, that's the problem here. That's That's what they're facing. And in verse 16, here here comes the the promise that he gives. This is the cure of it. What do we do? Okay, we find ourselves in this position. What do we do? Well, we repent. We turn from it. And it's not repent when it feels convenient, repent this. I love what we, you know, when we sing that that hymn, that beautiful hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Don't you wait till you feel better. Don't you wait till somehow you feel like you can clean yourself up and come and repent. Repent now! Immediately! Right away! Right away! Because if you wait and you delay and you think I've just got to clean this up and i got to deal with this and i got to deal with that I can't give my life to Christ because why? I need to make sure this, isn't, this is okay and this is okay and that's okay and I can't turn from that sin right now because man if I do this no you better repent right now immediately, instantly when He convicts your heart and mind of that you better turn from that sin right away Because any delay, any delay means you're more than likely going to continue in that sin. I know. I can look back at my life and think of things that God's convicted me of, and I've thought, well, maybe next week. We've just started a new year, right? We've already blown resolutions, right? hey, maybe next year. The offer and the command to repent is now. Don't you wait. Repent, and this is interesting, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember the sword? Notice who he says he's coming to fight against. He doesn't say I'm going to come deal with you. Right? What does the text say? I'm going to come fight against them. Now, the them may be those who are in the church there that are causing the problem. The them may be they're dwelling where Satan's throne is, right? So I'm, I'm going to come fight against them. Why in the world would we be worried, or why would he issue a warning here uh, that we should be concerned that he would come fight against our enemies? The only thing I can think of is Amos. Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And Amos, there were the people saying, come on, bring on the day of the Lord. Bring on judgment. Let's get it on. Let's get rid of these pagans. Let's get rid of them. You just come down and wipe it out. And Amos basically is saying, you don't know what you're asking for. Beware. Because see, if he were to come now, and let's say he comes, and let's just say we live in the United States of America, right? And let's just say that he, he sends word, I'm coming, and I'm gonna deal with them. I know I know what they're doing, I know how they're persecuted, I know what's what you're facing, and I'm gonna come deal with them. Do we live here? So if he brought down the United States of America tomorrow, would we not suffer with it? You see? You better repent. Because if I come deal with them, you still live there. Now, you'll be safe. You'll be protected. You're still my child. Remember Daniel's three friends? Remember thrust into that furnace? Yet Christ was there with them, but did they go in the furnace? If He comes in judgment... We might very well be in a furnace. But will he be with us? Yes, he will. Every step of the way. So there's this promise, if you repent, then I'll come to fight against, uh, or unless you repent, I'm coming to fight against them. And then verse 17, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and own the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. The hidden manna seems to be, uh, Old Testament, we know the manna. God provided the manna. Uh, Jewish tradition said in 586 when the Babylonians destroyed the temple uh, that the hidden manna was hidden or that the manna was taken and it was hidden by an angel or by another man by the name of Josiah. But they said it was hidden and it would be brought back out in the days of the Messiah. Is this what he's referencing? I don't know. I think just simply what he's saying is you're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And if you overcome, you're going to get the hidden manna to eat. Who who ultimately is the manna? Jesus said in John 4, I am the what? Bread of life. I think it's a way of him saying you're going to get me. But the white stone is an interesting one. If you go in my office, on on my table, on my desk, there's a stone. It's not white, but written on the name, there's a name in white written on that stone. Where that stone came from was that when we lived in Wyoming, I I, I was making reference to this. And there was a dear couple in the church, and then when we left Wyoming, after several years, I think it was, that that I dealt with this, and and this, this gentleman came up to me, and he had the stone And his last name was on the stone. And he handed it to me. And he remembered me talking about this at one time. What is this white stone? Some have said that it was pardoned for crimes. They would put, you know, the the, the granite, the the black, the white. And if you were pardoned, you got a white stone. Maybe Jesus is saying you're pardoned. Maybe. uh, Victors in public games would get white stones if you won. And you got that. And it meant you got certain things. You got certain gifts from the Roman government. And some said white stone was an invitation to public feast. Some said that they were inscribed with things like food and garments and so forth, and they would throw them out in the crowds, and the crowds these emperors would go along and throw them out. But those seemed to be more wooden balls than stones. There was a tesserae, that's what they were called, there was a tesserae hospitale. And what they would do is they would take a stone and they would cut it in two. And one person would write their name on one half, and the other person would write their name on the other half. And they would exchange the halves. And what that meant, this was guarded. This was I mean, they passed this down to children and to generations. And what that meant was that since I have a stone with his name on it, at any point in time in my life that I needed something, even if he's dead, and it's his children, I could present that stone with that name to his children. And they were under covenant to help me. I don't know if that's what he's referring to. I don't know if that's the particular one, but I think it's beautiful, isn't it? It, it sort of fits with, with the gospel. It sort of fits with the new covenant and what Jesus has covenanted with us, Right? We have his name. We've been given his name. But he talks about this stone and on that stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. This little church at Pergamus. Compromise, accommodate. There are a lot of things I could put up with. There are a lot of things that I don't like but I could accommodate that aren't a compromise. But there is a line... And we better know that line. And the only way I'm going to know that line is that we preach and teach the Word of God so that we understand the line and that you get in the Word of God on your own so that you understand the line for your life personally. Their response to the pressure, to the pagan pressure of the culture was to compromise. What's our response going to be? When you compromise, what that means is this. It simply means this. Yeah, I know you can make all kinds of excuses. You want to save your job. You want to save your reputation. You want to save your family. You want to say, I get all that. And I'm not discounting that. I mean, that's, those are real concerns. But the bottom line, what it comes down to is this. You love yourself. And you want to preserve yourself more than you do Christ. Really? Isn't that it? That's what it really comes down to. I love self more than I love Christ and His truth. I don't know, man. I I, I hope, I, I pray that I'm not put in that situation. Right? I mean, let's just be honest with each other. I pray I'm not put in that situation. I think I know what I would do. I hope I know what I would do. And I would pray that God would give me the grace in that moment to do what needs to be done. And that's not, not deny His name, right? To hold fast His name and not deny His faith. It won't happen unless you are first a believer. That's where it starts. If you're not a believer, you've already compromised. And you will continue to compromise. But if you'll turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ, now, now, He'll save you. He'll save you and He'll give you the grace to stand. Right? Let's pray together. Father, thank You. For your word. There's so much more here with his church. But the issue of compromise is so crystal clear and it's it's a very real issue. It's where we live now. And so we just pray, Lord, pray, help us stand. Every area, every every area of our lives, help us stand. Father, I pray also for those that are in parts, places in the world where This is an everyday thing for them. I pray that you give them strength. Help them to hold fast to your name. Not deny your faith. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.